there are few decades in film history that have been as scrutinized as the 1980s. But to really understand the decade and its movies, it's going to take a couple someones who were there for it the first time around. Drew McQueenie and Scott Weinberg are ready to review every major film of the decade one month at a time. They'll look at what worked then, what endures now, and how it felt to be there when it all went down. Turn back the calendar with us. It's the 80s all over. Sally Ride was announced as the first American woman astronaut. The Atlanta Braves became the first team to ever win the first 12 games of a season. The United States made a formal transfer of the Canal Zone back to Panama, and the trial of John W. Hinckley Jr., the man who shot Ronald Reagan, finally got underway. Even so, we found some time for the movies of April 1982. Hi, everyone. Welcome to 80s All Over. I'm Drew McQueenie. As always, I am joined by my co-host, Scott Weinberg. Scott, howdy, buddy. Hey, sir. How are you? Hello, everybody out there in 80s all overland. You've got a movie showing up on Shutter pretty soon, don't you? Yeah, you gave me an early plug. Yes, I uh, co-produced and have a small role in uh, a horror comedy called Found Footage 3D, which plays on Shutter, premiering on October 26th. It is a comedic horror film written and directed by my friend Stephen DeGennaro, and I had a great time making it, and, and uh, a lot of people seem to like it, and that's that. One of my favorite things about what we're doing right now is that we're heading into one of my favorite stretches of the 80s. And as I've been putting stacks of movies together and stuff for the next, like, four or five months' worth of episodes, it's really delightful to have all of this stuff sitting around the house right now and to be watching it. And this episode is kind of, it feels to me like we're starting up the hill of a roller coaster now. Like, the last episode was pretty good. There's some really good stuff this month. And then it's just going to get nuts. Say oops upside your head. Say oops upside your head. Say oops we did, uh, we did pull a quick boner, and uh, I wanted to uh, just go ahead and say, I know Nicole Williamson did not play Arthur. I know he played Merlin, but it's one of those things, you have a brain fart, you hear it come out of your mouth, it sounded right at the time. Uh, yes, we got that wrong when we mentioned Nicole Williamson. You rem- just reminded me of a boner that I don't think anybody ever called us out on, but when I listened to the episode, I made it sound like Nicole Williamson was, quote-unquote, a leading lady of Venom, when, of course, he is, was not. He is a leading man, uh, because I mentioned him right after Susan George, and it sounded like I was referring to Nicole Williamson as a woman. <laughs> Nicole Williamson uh, was a man, and uh, we are sorry to cause so much confusion. From now on, when Nicole Williamson's name comes up, we will call him Nick. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't catch that. Well, uh, listen, guys, if you want to help us uh, hire research assistants so this sort of thing does not occur, Patreon is a chance for you to help financially support the creation of the show. We are a completely independent program. We don't have any advertising getting in the way of the show here. Right now, you are the ones underwriting this five-year project, and we want to thank you for that. Sure. What, what did we have up recently for the bonus episode? Uh, we had a really lovely uh, thing where we talked about Harry Dean Stanton, and that led us into sort of drafting some of our favorite character actors from the 80s. Um, we have done the mailbag, which we'll do again very soon so that uh, patrons can ask us questions directly. 
And uh, we are still looking to lock down more interviews. Uh, there are a lot of people we've approached, and people seem interested. It's just a matter of coordinating time. And thank God most of these people are still busy. We're still trying to nail down Bill Sadler, the awesome Bill Sadler, uh, Xander Berkeley, the great Ellen Barkin. Uh, all we have to do is figure out some technical specs, and we will have an interview. I will drive to her house to install something. I will seriously, I will buy her a computer. Well, fair warning. If the only way that we can get an Ellen Barkin interview is that Drew goes and interviews her personally and Scott has to step back, that will be fine with me because she is amazing and I just want her on the roster. So, uh, all right, here's a segue. Speaking of a sexy woman. <clears throat> that's a terrible segue. We're going to talk about Kate Capshaw and Tim Matheson, two actors I quite enjoy in a completely forgettable sex comedy called A Little Sex. It's the movie about marriage and mating habit. Uncontrollable urge. Oh, boy. Temporary insanity. Sex appeal. Victory. Basic needs. A little sex. Uh, excuse me, you can't do that here. There's no such thing as a little extra sex. Even when it's bad, it's good. I'd be lying if I said it wasn't good. A little sex. Rated R. Yeah, this is, um... This is one of those movies that I remember when it came out. It's hard to forget the title. Like, it's one of those titles that is, especially if you're 10 or 11 when the movie came out, probably going to catch your attention. It's an innocuous, crummy sitcom uh, directed by Bruce Paltrow, Gwyneth Paltrow's dad. I don't know what the market was for these kinds of movies at that point, but I don't identify with either of these people or anything they're going through. or Even the most generic rom-coms, right, have a hook. And in this one, the hook is that he can't keep it in his pants. He's just like, I can't help it. And you just want to punch him in his face, which is weird because, as listeners know, I, Andrew, uh, are both huge Tim Madison fans. To have him play a guy who is supposed to be charming on the surface is all kind of just gross underneath. Um, it's very tiresome. I, I did not care for this movie at all. You know, David Mamet's play, Sexual Perversity in Chicago, got adapted later in the 80s into About Last Night. And I still don't think About Last Night is a great movie. But I think that the bones that it is built on, the Mamet bones, are the smart version of what a little sex is trying to do, which is the idea of, is it possible for you to decide that somebody is the one? And dude, that question's been addressed in a million movies in a million different ways. But you've got a cast like John Glover, who is constantly kind of hovering in the, the background of this. You've got Edward Herman. You've got Winnie Malik. You've got Wallace Shawn. You've got really talented comic actors and dramatic actors. And there's nothing for any of them to do. I don't think there's a character in this that I will remember. I don't think there's a scene in this that really stuck out. The way he is finally tempted into crossing the line and, and cheating on her is, frankly, dumb. And I why are we supposed to sympathize with this guy if he's this incapable of just being decent to the person that he's supposedly in a relationship with, there's nothing about that that I find identifiable in a movie. He's just a, a prick, frankly. The performances are fine. Like you mentioned, the supporting cast is great. It's got some nice exteriors of New York. It's not unwatchable, but it's just so, like, it's like a, a future-length sitcom with a couple of dirty words, and, uh, you know, it just seems like it's meant to coast on the charm of Madison and Capshaw, and a, a different romantic comedy could coast on them, but this screenplay can't. From then, we move on to a an obscure and, in my opinion, highly underappreciated uh, comedic action film. Drew, why don't you introduce this one? Um, it's a little bit of everything. It's very ambitious, especially because I think it was made for about 17 cents. You'll see a lot of people in the very beginning of their film careers in this one, thanks to writer-director Nick Castle and his movie Tag, 
the assassination game. Oh, the film opens with uh, a quick scene from an actor we've already mentioned in this episode. The great Xander Berkeley shows up very, uh, very early and very briefly in this film, and I wish that he had had more to do. Nick Castle is a well-known as a John Carpenter collaborator, worked with Carpenter on, on um, Escape from New York and, of course, Halloween, and uh, a really fun, entertaining, likable genre filmmaker in his own right. We will get to other Nick Castle well, This is our films. second, because we, we, we uncovered the Prey TV credit, which was mind-blowing to both of us. Right, the Prey TV, but I can't wait till we get to You Know What. I'll give you a hint. Giggle. <laughs> All right, anyway... Back to our mature adult film discussion, Drew. Tag the Assassination Game would be kind of remade a few years later into the slightly more well-known Gotcha with Anthony Edwards, even though it's uh, more of an international flair. In this, it's about a fad, not unlike laser tag, only with rubber darts, that briefly swept, or allegedly briefly swept, uh, college campuses in which it was basically a, a battle royale game where you would uh, be on campus and, you know, you had a list of foes and you had to... Dispatch them with your rubber arrows. Sounds like a pretty fun game. But of course, dun dun dun, someone is taking the game too seriously. The motivation for that is the only real problem I have. I think Robert Carradine, what I love about this is that he's playing his idea of smooth Robert Carradine. And this is just a couple of years before Revenge of the Nerds. And Robert Carradine in this is a guy who, in his head, is Robert Mitchum. But he's Robert Carradine. And there is something really charming about the way he's playing it. Like, he is the suavest motherfucker in the room, even though he's not. And I, I really admire his approach to it. And I think Linda Hamilton's super charming in it. Yeah, it has several scenes that are clearly meant to evoke direct takeoffs of 1940s film noir moments where she's the femme fatale and he is the uh, allegedly uh, cocksure, confident hero, but it is not quite as capable as he thinks he is. It doesn't totally work, but it is super ambitious. And, like, I think Nick has... He has a pretty solid eye in this movie. I have a real fondness for Christine DeBell, uh, who's in Meatballs and a couple of other films. And the whole scene with her and the bleachers is all I'll say. If that was shot by an actually great cameraman, that would have been a great scene, because I think it's got a great idea, and I think it's, it's well-staged. His real handcuffs in this movie are that he had, like, $36 to spend, and... You're right. It is a little film and was relatively obscure. I think Gotcha got more attention for the same basic idea. But I think this is well worth tracking down if you can. And it's got a lot of charm. I think this is the kind of thing that I look for in first movies is can you see that there's some some real confidence in what they're trying to do? And even if he doesn't get there, you can see that Castle's got some real muscle. I love Anybody who tries to combine three or more genres in one film and pay each genre fair due. It does have some real thriller aspects. It does have some light comedy, romance, and film noir aspects. And while they don't, they sometimes butt up against each other, I'd rather take that than one, a movie that's just one thing throughout. And I'm curious, what percentage of our listeners do you think have actually seen Tag the Assassination Ooh, Game? We've got pretty astute listeners. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go for... 23%. All right, I would go, yeah, I would go higher, but no higher than 30. <laughs> All right. Now, this next film, we've talked a little bit about this already, Scott. The weird thing about this movie is this is a film where if you had asked me six weeks ago, 
What do you think of this film? I would have said, oh, uh, charming little comedy. I, I remember it was on HBO a lot. I think it's charming. Um, holy shit. Revisiting this movie is one of those things where you're like, this is why you watch it again, because what you remember and what it is can radically diverge sometimes. Uh, our next movie, Scott. If you could see what I hear. Think of all the beautiful girls standing around with their panties on all alone, waiting for a band of stout-hearted men to whisk them off into the catacombs to some far-off land. Tom Sullivan is an all-American guy. Come along, I'll show you to your rooms. I tell you, you won't see a prettier view than that, Mr. Sullivan. My, my, that is a lovely view, isn't it? If you could see what I hear. Nice to make fun of sighted people. Rated PG. Starring Mark Singer as the wackiest blind man you'll ever see, who gets away with the most outrageously disgusting behavior. Why? Because he's blind. You'll want to punch a blind man in the face. My mom has a sister, an adopted sister, my Aunt Marie. She's been completely blind since she's about four or five. She has a normal life in virtually every way. For a third, you know, for 20 years, she took a train into Center City. She's got three kids. She works with computers. She plays the piano. She, like, in every way, her life is completely normal, except for the fact that she can't see and therefore can't, like, drive and do stuff like that. So when I saw this movie as a kid and it just seemed like everything he did was so precious and italicized and... It's like, dude. I'm the first blind man ever. The point of the movie seems to be a young blind man can be as wildly obnoxious and misogynistic, really just not like. We're going to start talking about an archetype over the course of this show that I have really started to, to focus in on as we're rewatching these films. And I have a theory. There is a, a shitty 80s white guy character that became ubiquitous and everybody played their variations on him and in some cases they made people into movie stars playing that character so i always liked that guy i and did so that's the thing at the time i thought i did but now that i'm looking at this guy with any distance if this guy walked into a room my first instinct would be to walk out of it right Drew. you know what i think it is it's uh, awful what happened is movies like animal house and caddyshack had these caricatures of uh, troublemaking young guys. Like, not one of the guys in Animal House, although they're based on real men, not one of those are real people. They're caricatures, so that when they do outrageously obnoxious things, we can applaud and go, ha-ha, D-Day, ha-ha, Flounder, that's funny. That doesn't really translate when your movie is supposed to be about a literal flesh-and-blood human being. Then you're just like, boy, are you... If you had to watch a movie that was nothing but Bluto Blutarski for 96 minutes... And see, I think... This happened because, and it, it's all—it's the same reason that the, these characters became so popular in the first place. It, there was a very valid reaction to what was authority and what was conventional America and conservative America, and it happened in our comedy and our music and everything else. And the Bill Murray character that walks through a situation, openly mocks everything about it, is a character that if it harkens all the way back to the Marx Brothers. It is—it is comic destruction of the norm. There was a reinvention of it, and that reinvention of it is this shitty white guy character. And Mark Singer in this movie is a phenomenal example of why, if this was a real person, you wouldn't fucking put up with it. Not at all. He's a musician named Tom Sullivan who sometimes he's a, a likable scamp, and at other times he's just over-the-top obnoxious and then wallows in self-pity. It's just poorly written. I believe it was well-intentioned. I do that. I don't think it was meant to be just a... Uh, oh boy, wacky blind guy. I, I, I think that there was meant to be a point here. 
his behavior is just so obnoxious and consistently unlikable that it's hard to get behind any other point that it might have made about overcoming a, a handicap or a difficulty. It's a bummer of a movie in terms of just how faulty your memory can be. I admire the film for, you know, trying to say, hey, you know what? Blind people can be as uh, goofy or silly and as obnoxious as sighted people. That's cool. I'm down with that. But it just, like, leans on every one of those buttons to, like, 11 when it should have put that button on, like, 6. Next, we move to a relatively obscure Dennis Hopper film that uh, has some connective tissue to Easy Rider. Drew, why don't you elucidate our listeners on the beauty and the relative quality of Out of the Blue? From Out of the Blue comes the most controversial movie of the year. Dennis Hopper, the man who defined the 60s with Easy Rider, now takes on the 80s. Out of the Blue. This is a film that's kind of legendary because it was the beginning of Dennis Hopper's turning himself around. And I'm fascinated by Hopper. I'm fascinated by the films of his I like, by the films I don't. And he is a director I find intriguing. I think Easy Rider is insanely dated at this point. It is a movie that exists for 35 seconds as this brilliant, beautiful, illuminating thing. And then after that, it's a museum piece. But man, to see Easy Rider in the theater must have felt like you were on the front line of the culture war. Like, it must have been a shock to the system seeing that shit on a movie screen the year it came out. I root for him as a filmmaker because I think he's got muscle and ambition and he's crazy, but I think the last movie is one of the five or six worst films I've ever seen. Just to clarify, the last movie is the name of a film that Dennis Hopper directed. He didn't mean the yes. last movie. I mean, it is. there is literally a film of his called The Last Movie, and it's a nightmare. It's really terrible. I find that the, the, uh, the behind-the-scenes uh, anecdotes and the stuff written about the last movie are exponentially, infinitely more interesting oh, than well, the movie Oh, well, it's itself. fascinating. It's the only film to ever be shot on actual cocaine. There's no film stock. They just put cocaine in the cameras, and then this is what came out. And it's what happens when you make a movie that is as defining as Easy Rider, because Easy Rider wasn't just a hit. Easy Rider wasn't just a phenomenon. Easy Rider broke the film industry. And what got rebuilt in the aftermath was what we rode into the 80s on. It was that studio system. So Out of the Blue is a tiny little Canadian movie that he agreed to act in. And by this point, he couldn't get hired as a filmmaker. And so he starts making this movie, and a couple of weeks into production, he takes it over. He starts rewriting it, and he starts really workshopping. And the end result is, I think, the real shot across the bow by Dennis Hopper saying, no, no, listen, I'm a real fucking filmmaker. I know I went insane, but I'm a real filmmaker, and I'll prove it. He's a guy who, he's a bus driver who kills a bunch of kids in the beginning of the film by accident, and it's a horrible accident. And he goes to jail. And when he gets out, he wants to have a, a relationship with his daughter, who's played by Linda Manns. And if you're a classic film fan, then you know Linda Manns as the narrator of Days of Heaven by Terrence Malick. And she has that amazing voice, that crazy Bronx accent, that husky 85-year-old smoker voice in a little girl. And it was crazy in Days of Heaven. She is a firecracker in this movie and it is just about him trying to be a father to this girl whose mother is a junkie and he is trying to figure out how to fit into the world now that he's lost time because of the accident and hopper is great on camera but man he's amazing behind camera in this movie it's a really well-made haunted broken-hearted movie where 
it took two years for it to get distribution in the U.S. after it was made and released in Canada, and it still barely leaked into theaters. It's a shame because I do think that if this was if this had been given any kind of support here, it could have really turned things around for him earlier. You know, it wasn't until the end of the decade that he kind of got rediscovered as an actor and then finally was able to make mainstream movies again well yeah it was just kind of floating around is is he still a filmmaker is he just a character actor will he just fade away and like you said he was like not only am i not going away but i'm going to make this small canadian indie film even better and then i'm going to go back to hollywood and say you need me for your character actor roles because i can make movies like hoosiers 10 times better I'm so glad that he had a second act as a filmmaker and as an actor, because I, I think Hopper is invaluable. Absolutely. God, I mean, if we always talk about, what's his name, Michael Parks. I, I, when, when Tarantino resurrected his career, God bless him, I thought, oh, I love this guy, but I don't really know him all that well. And that could have been Dennis Hopper. Above and beyond, I also think Linda Manns is one of those people who I don't get why other filmmakers didn't know she was a gift. When you're that distinctive, you're, you become like a novelty item. And like, you know, they'll hire you to be that novelty item. But OK, and speaking of there's a segue, speaking of not <laughs> risking anything <laughs> and just doing the exact same thing that everybody else is doing, you could tell just by the title how much creativity went into, I'm sorry, both titles, X-Ray, also known as Hospital Massacre. Uh. Hospital Massacre, here comes Barbie Benton, let's go mess with her, because she's pretty in this shitty hospital. Barbie Benton was a Playboy bunny, and they tried to make her into a movie star, and she's not a very good actor. She is not a very good actor. To be fair, they gave her, arguably, the stupidest screenplay I've ever seen in a slasher movie. It's a dumb movie, and she's a dumb character. So it's... She goes in for a checkup, <laughs> and then she's like bounced around from office to office while she's like waiting to get test results, talk to another doctor. She just randomly bumps up against people in the hallway in gurneys and, and creepy-looking security guards or it's one of these movies where the further you get into it there is less and less of an excuse to keep her in the building it's nonsense that she would still be there after some of what happens in the film like she wouldn't just run um the explanation for why the psycho is stalking is he really is the most tender of tender snowflakes i have never seen anybody get more of a bruised sense of hurt out of less of an event at the beginning Oh, yo, hi, oh, Barbie, uh, Barbie, would you maybe want to have lunch one day? Uh, you know what, I'm not sure, uh, you know, I'm kind of seeing somebody right now. I will stalk you until the end of time. <laughs> <laughs> Terrible. Like, that's why I think so many of these slasher movies, the knockoffs, really kind of ruined the pot for the, I, I like the ones that are chintzy and cheap, but try to be scary. A lot of these knockoffs don't try to be scary. They they just want to be cheesy and chintzy and leering and get a couple of bucks. Uh, they're not. Well, this guy was not a horror filmmaker. It, you know, Boaz Davidson. We'll we'll talk about his best movie later this year, the the Last American Virgin. But the rest of his filmographies, for the most part, is really crap. It's programming teen comedies. Uh, he was the creator of the Lemon Popsicle series, and which. There was a million of those, and they that's basically what The Last American Virgin was. It was an American version of those. Would you say, wait, The Last American Virgin? Yes, I would say it was that, <laughs> unless they that, remake it. Then it's the next The Last but, American uh, Virgin. Boaz Davidson would, of course, go on to be one of the founders of, uh, I believe it's New Image. 
They produce a lot of schlocky monster movies now. He's doing the Undisputed movies. Yeah, and, and those, yeah, yeah. They churn out some fun schlock and some junky schlock, but Boaz Davidson is still cooking. Uh, he survived X-Ray, a.k.a. Hospital Massacre. Uh, unfortunately for her career, Barbie Benton's did not. Yeah, not really, no. This movie leers at her. It's There's really no doubt that the movie is leering at her. That is the difference. You're making me complicit in the leering. I don't mind if I'm being complicit and looking at two people making love. That doesn't bother me. I don't just don't want to see this ugly clinical shit. Don't make me a part of your perverted vibe, you early 80s stalker slasher rape obsessed weirdo like seduction and eyes of a stranger hospital massacre. Stop it. Well, on that note, um... <laughs> We've also got Battle Truck. Don't you mean Warlords of the 21st Century? But I also mean Battle Truck. 1994. After the oil wars. After the destruction of the cities. Battle Truck. Good morning. My name is Colonel Stryker. Hey, wait a minute. You can't come in. Who's in charge here? Only one man dared oppose him. Hunter. How do I find this hunter? Up in the mountains somewhere. You'll never catch him. Watch me. He'll beat you because he's better. Over my dead body. Your time is over, old man. Not yet, kid. Battle truck. This movie is bananas. It, there is so much story in Battle Truck for a movie called. Here's the thing, you had me. It's called Battle Truck. Battle Truck. I get it. I'm in. Okay, show me some Battle Truck. And there's so much story before Battle Truck really gets to be. Battle Truck. I believe Embassy put the VHS out, and I just stared at it for like ten minutes, and I'm like, yes. If this movie is one-third as good as the cover, I will be happy. <laughs> and now that if you had said, hey, Scott, how do you feel about that cover? I would say it, the movie was not one-third as good as the cover. I will say this. It is not a case of false advertising. There is indeed a battle truck in Battle Truck. Battle Truck. Last episode, we discussed Sorceress, which is a silly, laughable, very cheap knockoff of much better uh, sword and sorcery type stories. But it's also kind of entertaining in that because it's one of the first and earliest. And I kind of feel that way about this. There's a lot of Mad Max and Road Warrior ripoffs that we'll get to as the episodes go on. But I think this might be one of the most just unapologetically energetic, like just the most fun. It's not a bad looking movie. It takes place after the oil wars and there is, you know, a big giant truck that's driving around basically uh, with raiders. And it's, I mean, you've seen this story a million times. It is yet another Seven Samurai riff where somebody's got to help stop the general and his battle truck and his dudes. And somebody does. I know who and it is. It's Michael Beck from The Warrior specifically who does it. He's licking his wounds here after Xanadu. Xanadu cratered his Yeah, career. dude took off to New Zealand to make this one. And you know what? He gives it everything he's got. Uh, I will say that Michael Beck does not phone this shit in. Um, and that's the thing. It's one of those movies where I... Like it, don't like it, the people making it clearly showed up and actually pushed. If there was not a Road Warrior, I wonder what movie finally would have like been the best of this genre, like after Mad Max. World Gone Wild with Bruce Dern, or or perhaps Warriors of the Wasteland, which we'll, we'll get to those two. If this was one of the very first ripoffs, I think 1985's 
World Gone Wild was pretty much one of the very last Mad Max ripoffs. So there, there you can chart the uh, the course of this sub sub genre for a while. Um, and if you are a fan of this subgenre, let's throw in a plug for our friends Cargill and Salisbury over at Junk Food Cinema. We tolerate and or like the post-apocalyptic subgenre. They are the deep sea These divers. Guys they are the deep sea divers. They love this stuff up, down, left, and right. So uh, give them a listen. Drew, what is our next motion picture? Uh, our next motion picture is a movie that I have a genuine fondness for, more so now than uh, even before I revisited it. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Am I looking at the same sheet you are on our notes? Because on my notes, it says the next film is Penitentiary 2. That's right. Two sweets back. He's bad, beautiful, and he's looking for action. O2 will come through. Same old two sweets. He made a deal to get out. You want to be a wise guy? But the man wants to change it. Permanently. Now, Two Sweets out for revenge. No matter what the cost. Jama Fanakas. Penitentiary 2. You like this movie? I like what this movie is, yes. What the fuck? Go. <laughs> My, I mean, my my position is easy. Okay. The first film wasn't great, but actually was an in, you know an earnest look at what goes on inside of a prison. I think this is where we're going to defer because yeah, I don't I don't care about the earnest. I prefer this version where he walks into a gym and Mr. T's like, "I'm gonna pick you up and I'm gonna slam you down. You're gonna be my lunch." I'm like, "Oh, I'm so in. Here we go. All right." All right, all right. To me, this feels like a filmmaker kind of betraying the sincere film he did the first time just to grab some exploitation money. I like Jamafanaka's films in general, and this one I think is a solid one. I think I give you the first one, man. To me, this is Death Wish two to Death Wish. The third one is the one where I really think it falls off the shelf, and I can't defend it on any level. But I like this one. It's got Leon Isaac Kennedy does a good job. He's not, he, you know, there's some good performances. Glenn Turman, Mr. T, very early role, the great Ernie Hudson. There are some fun exchanges and and quick action scenes that are like, what the fuck did I just see? But it's just it's just very garish where the first film seemed to be a bit more earnest or sincere. Yeah, the, the first film was more heartfelt, certainly. Um, I don't know that I needed heartfelt from it. I kind of enjoyed the fact that this one leans into the exploitation side with them. They want to make him box, and I enjoy that. So, Ladies and gentlemen, if you like Penitentiary 2, follow Drew McWeeny. If you don't <laughs> like Penitentiary 2, follow Scott E. Weinberg. But I have to warn you, on my Twitter, more cat pics. So let's move on from Penitentiary 2 to a film that for many years I thought was a terrible slasher film uh, because I watched it with some friends at like a sleepover thing and for some reason it didn't register with us. We didn't like it. Saw it again last week and my opinion of it raised quite a bit. It's time for a crash course in terror at the dorm that dripped blood. Uh, great. What's wrong? The phone's dead. Did you hear anything up on the roof? Do you think we need to go up there? Need to? Yeah, we don't need to do anything. The dorm that dripped blood, where the only thing you'll learn is how to die. Rated R. Uh, I'm with you. It's it's actually as a by the number slasher film goes, 
pretty solid by the number slasher film. Right. And these guys would go on to do some some smaller horror films throughout the 80s, like The Power and The Kindred. Stephen Carpenter alone would go on to create a very popular TV show called Grimm with two M's. The Dormitory Blood is a student film. Uh, they knew that they had the campus to themselves for a while, and so they built their screenplay around the fact. And like Drew said, there is nothing in it that's new or novel plot-wise, but some of the acting is pretty good. Uh, it's got some good scares, and it feels like a student film, like Dark Star, but it's a well-made student film, and I'm not surprised that it got their foot in the door. I think it has a lot of energy, and everybody on board knows exactly what they're making, and the young cast is on point. It's just confident, and that counts in this kind of thing. You know, if you're gonna, if I'm gonna take the time to watch a no-budget slasher film, at the very least, what I expect is. Uh, look like you mean it. You're not above it. You're making a, a conventional slasher movie. Accept it, respect it, and then make it decent. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. There's a difference between a guy behind a business uh, a, a business table. Business table? Business table. There's a guy behind a business table saying, uh, what's popular now? Hospital horror movies. Let's, let's, let's churn one out. And then a student who has an assignment to make a feature, and they go, I like these slasher movies, and... And I think I could do a little better, or I think I could improve here. You know, I, I think slasher movies uh, kind of did some good for, for young filmmakers because it's a, a format and a, and a setup that's not difficult to mount. That was all very earnest, and I'm still laughing about you forgetting the word desk. <laughs> no, I was thinking about... <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking about a guy behind a boardroom, like a big, big, a big, big uh, okay. table. <laughs> table. A business <laughs> table, like a, like a desk. No, like 12, <laughs> I'm like, like there were 14, oh, I see. 14 All right. people okay. behind, like sitting around a table deciding if the Dorm the Drip Blood gets his $40,000 or not. Um, all right, so there you go. Dorm the Drip Blood. I'm going to have to recuse myself on the next film because I was unable to track it down. But Drew was adamant that it deserves mention, and after looking into it, I agree that it does. And Drew, why don't you tell us about Diva? Diva is one of those films that, however you come to it, I I went to a local theater to see it because it was an art house movie. And that was the way it was sold, and I remember it was written up in the newspapers. This is art. And I was in the middle of starting to really chart my tastes with junk and genre and big budget Hollywood stuff. And those were the things I was fascinated by, but I also wanted to push myself. And I, when I heard stuff like, well, this is art, I would really try to get in and see it. And this was one that I took my mom to just her and I, and it went really well, which is good because I'll tell you a story about one that didn't go so well later, but it's just a clever, beautiful thriller about a kid who is a motorcycle messenger who is in love with an opera singer and he's in love with her voice. He's in love with the way she performs. He's in love with her. He just is fascinated by her and he bootlegs her, her work. A bootleg of her performance leads him into this incredible sort of caper movie. There is a chase scene in this movie that is an all timer. That is one of the great chase scenes on film involving the kid, his motorcycle underground trains in Paris and Escalators. And I, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing the filmmaker's name right, Jean-Jacques Benet, but he was an assistant director for a lot of famous filmmakers in France and then gradually worked his way up. And I, I think this is this is one of those films that it should have kicked off a gigantic career. And I don't really get it. <clears throat> we'll get to uh, two of his other films, The Moon in the Gutter, uh, which I haven't seen, and Betty Blue, which oddly I have seen. And uh, yeah, I think you're right. I think maybe this gentleman deserved a, a bigger, uh, at least art house career here in the States. 
Greatest footnote to his career, he is the second assistant director on The Day the Clown Cried. Oi. Yeah, how about that? Oi. His oi. eyes his eyes have seen the glory. Did you just lay me up that softball, Drew? To because the next film that we're about to cover deals very, very personally and, and care closely with the Jewish persuasion. And that is Jeremy Paul Kagan's The Chosen. Not since Fiddler on the Roof has there been a movie with this kind of feeling. Not since Breaking Away has a story captured this kind of friendship. The heartwarming film of the best-selling novel. The Chosen. Most people of our generational ilk know Jeremy Kagan from uh, Journey of Natty Gant, which is a great film I can't wait to get into. But this is a film that uh, is based on a very popular novel by Chaim Potok. And uh, it's my grandmother and my aunts and uncles. This guy was Stephen King, J.K. Rowling, and uh, <laughs> and, and every, every author you could imagine rolled together. The finest author of all time. This was a film that they really rammed down our throat. In Hebrew school, in in anything having to do with Jewish people, it was, you must see this movie. And it's about a, um, a Hasidic Jewish boy who, who, to those who don't know, a Hasidic Jew is what you would call a very observant or orthodox Jew. And they follow all of the most stringent rules of Judaism, whereas most are either uh, casual or, or what they call reform. And they, those are people who will generally follow the, the major high holidays and, of course, go to synagogue once in a while. So you have one boy who is uh, Jewish, and his family is very Jewish, but not very observant. And then you have the other boy who is uh, of the Hasidic family. And it's interesting in that it shows even within a minority culture, there are big gulfs between people. That, like, you think, oh, all Jewish people are very similar. Not true. Not true. <laughs> I came to this because of Siskel and Ebert and, and coming from a, a Catholic and Episcopalian background, very, very unfamiliar world to me. But I thought what the film did so beautifully was set up how uh, the stakes within, within the community, what they were and, and how the families were divided and why it was important for each of the families, the, the positions they took. It's not a film about villains, not a film about good guys and bad guys. It's it's a film about really wrestling with big, big questions in the way it the way it divides families and friends. It almost feels like it's an after-school special where you're waiting for the one big tragedy to happen. Doesn't It doesn't happen. It's just an observational film about a community and two characters in that community growing up and finding their own path. The very religious boy, as played by Robbie Benson, quite well, I might add. On one hand, I wonder if a movie like The Chosen uh, works as like a red flag to bigots and anti-Semites but I like to think that a movie like The Chosen would maybe show everybody who doesn't know many Jewish people or maybe, God forbid, dislikes them. They, <laughs> this tribe is no different than yours. We all we have the exact same issues, problems, insecurities as every other minority in the world. While I, I still am not entirely in love with the film, I think it's kind of dry. <laughs> um, I really do, as, as both a Jewish kid and a... Uh, uh, and as an admirer of film, I think it's an important film, and I'm, I'm glad I saw it, and I would recommend it to uh, young Jewish kids, especially boys. But as a like as a film guy, it wouldn't be like, oh, it's me, you know, it's it changed my world and broke my uh, heart. You got, I don't, I don't think it's like quite that kind of movie. This next movie, so 
if I were to come into your office, you're a studio executive, Scott. I'm going to come in and pitch a movie to you. All right. <laughs> now, first. Uh, 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 Jenny, hold my calls, please. I, I'm, I, I'm going to, I got some Pornhub to get to. I have got it, dude. I have got the movie for you. This is. Oh, there's somebody already in my office. Forget please, that, Jenny. Please, Can I help you, sir? Please put your pants on. And listen, this idea is so sensational that I need your full attention. I know that frequently what you want to do is you want to take a real financial success. You want to take something that made somebody a pile of money, something that was just magical, and you want to find your version of that. Get to the pitch, kid. So Get to the pitch. Cruising. But funny. Cruising but funny? Cruising. Sir? But funny. You just became a filmmaker. Awesome. Here's a bag of money with a dollar sign on it. You two are going to handle this case together. I want you to live as a gay couple. Mr. Macho meets his mismatch. Ryan O'Neill is Benson. 100% all-male. Top hero cop. John Hurt is not. Partners. Waited a little while before you threw our first orgy. Don't be a sexist. Go back, hold his hand, and get the job done. There's a problem because he's bringing girls home. Sir, I quit. You guys are cops first. Well, let's go, man. Ryan O'Neill, John Hurt, partners. James Burroughs, who would go on to create Cheers. Oh, James Burroughs is one of the hardest working comedy directors in history. And one of the best sitcom directors you will ever see. Considered the-, the magic charm for pilots. If you wanted your show on the air, James Burroughs directed your pilot and he was magic. And this is John Hurt as a gay. Uh, he's not a detective. He's what? Uh, he's just a clerk. So he's not even like the film couldn't even have him be a gay detective who, who teams up with uh, homophobic Ryan O'Neill. And boy, Ryan O'Neill in this movie. Ryan O'Neill is like George Siegel minus well, And it's, it's funny because Carbon Copy is another movie where there's so much of it where people are horrible. If they're supposed to be having a change of heart later in the film, I don't care about their change of heart. They're horrible, horrible people. You know what makes me sick every time I see it? Where a straight man will like hold his hand up with the pinky up and, and like that kind of shit. That just that dismissive sneering it's camp, but it's ugly camp. Francis Weber, who wrote the screenplay for this, we've talked about this before. Francis Weber is one of the architects of 80s comedy. And this is a movie where I think the ugly heart of Francis Weber is somewhat exposed. And there's a lot of his movies where I look at them, I am not terribly comfortable with some of his stuff. And look, I know Lacazia Fall is groundbreaking, and I think Mike Nichols' version of it, The Birdcage is unbelievable. But I think overall, there are more Weber films that are profoundly uncomfortable that there are successful Weber films. And what's weird is John Hurt seems to be in a completely different film. He, It's like he read the script and he said, you know what? I'm going to play this with nobility and quiet like I'm in a Merchant Ivory film and I'll let this director and this co-star just do whatever they want, but I'm going to play this like I'm in a film that actually cares about gay people. I'll point out, because of the errors made 1982, you can expect to hear that word Nine million times. The fact that we lived through this era doesn't make it any less whiplash-inducing when Ryan O'Neill just throws it off like, I don't want to spend another ten minutes with this. And you're like, it's a terrible film. It's not funny. Uh, And then you pile on top of how insensitive it is, uh, even though it might have been culturally okay for films to be uh, this insensitive. 
that just makes it you know it more deserving of being obscure these days that's what i think so scott years ago uh, i was doing a play and we had an actor drop out like a week and a half before we were supposed to open and it was terrifying so we didn't know what to do and a lot of guys came in to read for us at the last minute guys i really liked my favorite of those readings of the guys who didn't end up doing it was saul rubinek he came in and you know i knew him from unforgiven i knew him from a lot of other movies he came in he crushed it his reading was so good that if we had just had tickets for that night, I would have been fine. That's a finished production. He was that good right off book. A real pleasure to watch him work up close. I feel bad that I've never seen our next movie, but you did. So please tell me about Soup for One. Tests investigating the biological implications of single living conducted experiments with laboratory rats. They were dressed in tight-fitting double-knit polyester suits and forced to listen to disco music at high volume. Is single living a viable alternative in a couple society? Helen, I can't go to bed with you. Why? Because you're short and you're weird. Who told you? Super One, rated R. This is a movie that is so Woody Allen, I am surprised that Woody Allen didn't just sue the guy. Written and directed by a gent named Jonathan Coffer. Uh, it stars Saul Rubinek as a man who has found the perfect woman, but she's not into him. So what does he do? He persists and persists. And then maybe he lands her through persistence. It's what I call the Pepe Le Pew approach, and I think it's creepy. I thought it was creepy before I even knew what a stalker was. So growing up and watching these movies where the idea was, oh, if I just really keep pushing and I just convince her that I'm the best, you know? And it's like, dude, you ever other fish in the sea? You ever heard that phrase? The woman he falls madly in love with, which I can understand, is Marcia Strassman, who uh, most people will remember from Welcome Back, Cotter, of course, right? Also stars Garrett Graham, uh, Richard Libertini, Andrea Martin, Maury Chaikin, so many good character actors. Michael Jeter, the late... And Teddy Pendergrass even shows up in this movie. And it's all just a very sticky, nebbishy Annie Hall. Like you mentioned, Saul Rubinek is a scene stealer in everything. Most people will remember him, of course, where he's the Joel Silver type. He's amazing in true romance. And he, I mean, he has sometimes very important supporting roles, and sometimes the dude has literally two lines. But you've seen him in 50 movies, and just his kind of nebbishy, nerdy energy makes for some good banter, makes for a couple of good quips. But we're watching a guy who desperately wanted something, got it, and now thinks he doesn't want it. And it's like... I don't care, man. Like, it's not that interesting. It's not funny enough or insightful enough to approach what, what he's clearly emulating in Annie Hall or Manhattan. Um, well, it's like a little sex. If you don't really have anything to say, these movies feel really empty. If you're, if you're not going to make a real observation, if you're not going to cut deep, the reason Woody Allen's films evolved isn't because Woody Allen was on some timetable where he was like, I guess I got to get more serious now. It's because the more times he did it, the more times he realized there was stuff he wanted to get to. And the movies got deeper by, by necessity. I think it's your very good point. A lot of times we talk about, oh, The Road Warrior has all these knockoffs. Alien has all these knockoffs. Romantic comedies have had plenty of knockoffs. And that's what A Little Sex and Soup for One are. They're not quite as, you know, mercenary or as, as obnoxious as, as a hospital massacre. But they really were invented or created with the same impetus. Oh, Woody Allen's making neurotic, sensitive comedies about men and women in the city and being honest about their feelings and their insecurities. I can do that, too. It, I don't, that's not necessarily a horrible thing, but when you hew too close to what you're inspired by, what, what is there about this film that makes it 
anything other than kind of a half decent Woody Allen copy. Scott, back in 1982, were you a fan of our next movie? Probably. It seems like it would have been your cup. Yeah, it's my favorite sub sub genre because very few good films came out of it. But if you look at the posters, they're also funny and colorful and potentially great, but they're not. Uh, the the horror spoofs I'm talking about are including Student Bodies, Saturday the 14th, both of which we've covered. But now we're going to talk about Pandemonium. <laughs> before has one motion picture dared to bring to the screen. Uh, which way to the cheerleader camp? Ah! Pandemonium! When you're away at camp, don't ever touch yourself, or you'll go blind. This is the incredible story of the night. All heck broke loose. This must be the act of a maniac. You are frightened of the night? Baloney. <laughs> you are frightened of baloney? <laughs> this motion picture by any other name would still be... Pandemonium! Here's the thing. I like Candace Azara who plays Bambi in the movie. I think she's one of those TV comic actors, and Candace Azara always showed up. She was always good. I, Phil Hartman's got a tiny role in this. There's a lot of very funny... I wouldn't say funny. Wouldn't say very. But in the movie, none of them really have anything to do. Here are the notes, Drew, that I jotted down. Broad, goofball, horror comedy, more like Saturday the 14th than Student Bodies. Solid cast, director Alfred Soule never directed again, but went on to be a very successful production designer. This movie aims for airplane-style delivery, but delivers very little of material that's actually funny. It's about a cheerleader camp that's stalked by a killer and Tom Smothers as a Mountie with Paul Rubens as a sidekick. Also, Carol Kane as a telekinetic girl. Also, Judge Reinhold, Deborah Lee Scott, Eileen Brennan, Eve Arden, Mark McClure. Some rancid... Asian stereotypes. I, I had very little patience for this. Very little patience. It's just so it's just so hard to give like a goofy, dippy comedy that you want to like. And you're like, oh, kind of a good gag, kind of a flat gag. Oh, that, that was a good line delivery. Oh, that was stupid. And then like you're on the fence with this movie and then they come up with like three Asian ching I mean, I don't want any parts of that. It's especially strange seeing all the old school comedy, like TV variety show type people in this because that kind of comedy is very particular and it's not this movie so it really feels like when tommy smothers comes riding into this film that he's on the wrong set it, it doesn't feel like he fits into this remotely if you're gonna mock a bad horror movie you better be a good comedy yeah there's a lot to make fun of in friday the 13th part three but if your joke is as ramshackle as pandemonium then hey maybe maybe somebody should be mocking your stupid comedy and speaking of horror where it doesn't belong Drew has a Chuck Norris movie to introduce. This movie was sold almost like a slasher movie, like it's Chuck Norris versus an unstoppable monster. So the film I'm talking about, of course, Silent Rage. Columbia Pictures presents Chuck Norris, the master fighter of our time. Now he must face an indestructible man in one final showdown that will push him to his limits and beyond. 
Chuck Norris in Silent Rage. Rated R. And my dad was a big Chuck Norris fan. This is this is his jam. So when they when we saw this poster, it was like, I know I can get to the theater for that one. Hold on, put that on the poster. Chuck Norris is my dad's jam. Drew McQueen, <laughs> 80s all over. Hey, I got to introduce my dad to Chuck Norris because of Action Fest. That was crazy. That's one of those where the whole thing was my dad just wanted to walk up to him and say, I really like judo. I really like you. And I really like your movies. Thank you very much. And then walk away. And that was it. But we went and saw this one in the theater. And it's the first time I ever broke my dad up where I was laughing at the movie. And I started laughing so hard at the movie that my dad ended up laughing at the movie. And I think Silent Rage is goddamn ridiculous. For my money, and you know I'm not a Chuck fan, nor was my father, so I don't have that personal connection. Although that is sweet that you got to introduce him to one of his heroes. As somebody who just straight up doesn't like Chuck Norris, I would call this one of his more watchable schlockies. Partially because it's half horror, and partially because it's actually like shot with real cameras, and it looks like it was lit by a professional DP. You know, it actually has a little bit of production value behind it. Stephen First is his deputy. Can I? Can we just start by talking about Stephen First as his deputy, who is played as Flounder as a deputy? He's terrible. He's sloppy. He barely. He can't fight. He misses the thing. He. There's a scene where they go into a biker bar. Stephen First incites a riot. Essentially, leaves. Chuck Norris has to fight the entire bar to a standstill, and then Stephen First comes back. Oldest joke in the book executed as if nobody had ever staged a joke on camera before. Terrible! The, the, the setup to this thing is that there is a guy who goes on a rampage, Chuck Norris is called to the rampage, beats the guy in a submission, and then the guy dies. They take his body and begin doing Frankenstein experiments on it. And for a big chunk of the movie, that's it. They're doing Frankenstein experiments, and Chuck Norris is having a romantic comedy movie happen, which is the ugliest, freakiest thing I can imagine. It's him shirtless a lot. There's a lot of slow-motion love montages. There's some kissing and some lovemaking, which is terrifying. And then, finally, Frankenstein gets up and rampages again, and we get back to the movie that we thought we were watching in the first place. Yeah, but- Tony, Tony Calum is his love interest, and uh, she's quite actually likable. Uh, Ron Silver is one of the doctors. I just remembered a really terrible comedy horror film called Class Reunion that would come out later this year. And it's directed by the same gentleman, Michael Miller, who made this. 1982 was his big, you know, I I made two features and that was it. And those are definitely the biggest movies he ever made. Those were fairly big releases. Class Reunion is part of, we'll talk a little bit more about this, but ABC was trying to get into feature films. And they had this slate of movies that they announced Class Reunion was one of them, and a lot of it hinged on the fact that they had this hot young National Lampoon writer, John Hughes, and they were going to ride him to the top. So we'll get to that one. So, Scott, we've got some big titles ahead. I feel like we just waded through like a lot of... Uh... Hey, you know what, Drew? If we ended this episode right now, those people out there got their money's worth, damn it. This is like an at least an hour, and we still have six more films to get to, all of which are much, much bigger than Pandemonium and Silent Rage. Drew, why don't you introduce us to I believe is our pick of the month, correct? It's got to be, because this is one of the great films of the 80s. It is one of the great films in terms of announcing a filmmaker by voice. We are going to have such a good time. There's a little place where people gather to enjoy the banquet of life. It's the diner. And what they really want most isn't on the menu. 
where friends show up, but mostly show off. I'll hit you so hard, I'll kill your whole family. You guys really are sick, you know that? That's because you got no sense of humor. It's a place to stop before moving on. Diner. It's open all day and cooking all night. Diner is right up there with American Graffiti and Dazed and Confused as far as launching careers. And we are going to take a moment here to pay homage to the brilliant woman who had her feature film debut in this film full of men. And that is the badass Ellen Barkin, which is weird because she'd go on to be known as one of the most dominating uh, leading ladies. And in this film, her debut, she plays kind of a... um, Kind of a scared uh, and mousy woman, and she's amazing in this movie. The reason that she stands out in this film is because it is a film about men and the way men talk to one another. And she is the one person to fire a shot over that wall in this movie that actually makes a dent, where she says something they actually hear. And I think it is, it's a remarkable performance by her. I, not only did I learn how to talk from Diner, but over the course of my life in the 80s and the early 90s, friends that I made were friends that, that rhythm of diner, that comedy of diner is something that they had in common with me. There is a language to diner and a music to it. I love the scenes where they're actually just sitting around the table and they're talking about each other's food and about what's going on with women and what's just listening to the way these actors play off. of Oh, each that other bit where he's like, if you don't finish that sandwich, let me have it. And he goes, do you want half the sandwich? I want it. If you're not going to finish it. And then the third buddy takes it. And I'm like, that is some, all right, it's not, you know, the most powerful of screenwriting in the world, but that is some of the most honest screenwriting I've ever seen. Every person in the world has had a conversation just like that with their buddies. You've had that that moment of frustration where you're, you're like, your friends aren't listening to you and they're laughing at you and you're caught up in the middle of all this banter. And it's just a great moment. I also love the scene that everybody knows where Daniel Stern is berating Ellen Barkin about his record collection. And this, Drew, to me, speaks about one of the key things I like about this podcast is because when I saw Diner in 1984, 5, 6, I thought to myself, well, he's kind of a jerk, but he's right. Those are his records, and he cares about them, and they should be, he should be more polite. But now you ask me that now, and I would say, look, if I was in that room with Daniel Stern, I would have said, dude, shut your fucking hole and put your records back where you want. That's, he doesn't have a point. No, he's completely wrong in how he reacts. But the thing he says to her that's so beautiful, and the thing that finally diffuses the argument that I love so much, is when he explains to her, it's not, it's not the physical record. It's the memory that's attached to it. It's the fact that it's a time machine, that it takes me back to this place in this time in this moment. And the song that you and I met was playing. That is the thing that shows. Is Levinson celebrating that or is he mocking that? Because she ends up leaving him. I, I think she ends up leaving him because of the way he handles it. But the, the sentiment underneath that, you see what it means to him. But he's so but it's caught also up in a it. childish sentiment. Of course. A, a memory of a record should not take the place of your wife's hurt feelings. I think, you know. But I don't think that he ever really acknowledges or realizes how rotten he is to her. And I think that's one of the key points of Diner is that when these guys are all together, they're lovely, they're charming, they're hilarious. But anytime they're around anybody else, especially a woman, that veneer, that little bubble of coolness pops. Like when you're in the real world, when you're dealing with other people's feelings, your little bro code, which we've all had at 17, 18 years old, 
Your little bro code doesn't mean shit to people on the outside, and you just look like an ass. Well, there's, I mean, everybody in this movie treats somebody badly in their life. Steve Guttenberg, the thing he puts the girl that he's supposed to marry through is ridiculous. And it's played as a joke at the beginning of that sequence. But by the end of it, I don't think it's a joke at all. I think it's really meant to show how scared and childish he is and how unprepared for any of this he is. Mickey Rourke has no business betting. He's a baby betting, and he bets like a baby. There's no method behind it. It is simply the thrill of how much can I get away with? How badly in debt can I get before they kill me? It, it really feels like a bunch of young boys, little boys, who just yesterday, literally yesterday, became men and are just going, mm, mm, I can gamble. I can treat women like garbage. I can, mm, what else can I do? What do men do? I love the characters. I love the fact that the movie doesn't let them off the hook. I don't think the movie completely endorses them. And I think Barry Levinson has just enough distance to have written them the right way in this movie. The, this movie played the wrong way is Porky's. This movie played the right way is Diner. One of the great things about the movie is that for, for Levinson, not every filmmaker gets to claim a city as their own. And I would argue that Levinson and John Waters share custody of Baltimore at this point. Absolutely. And, and I cannot wait until we dig into Tin Men. Because I absolutely love Tin Men in the 80s, and I've not seen it probably in 20 years. I ordered the DVD already because I'm so excited about us getting to that one. I, again, Diner is uh, easily one of the best films of 82. I, I think it's likely it'll show up on our wrap-up episode. I guarantee most of our listeners have already seen Diner, but if you haven't, go watch it. You'll have a, you will absolutely savor it. It is such a fun, entertaining, insightful movie. Our next film is a fist to the face it is a brutal awesome scream of a british gangster movie is it the best british gangster movie ever i think it might be i think you could make the argument bob hoskins in the long good friday there was the courier the cash the ripoff boss the meeting the widow the intrigue the greed the women the secret the setup the murders it started with betrayal ended with revenge one day 36 hours of terror the long good friday dude this this is one of those movies that every time i've come back to it i've loved it more every time i've learned more about how the ira worked how things went down it becomes a richer film. It is a movie where you don't need to know all of that to get what makes the movie amazing. But the more you know, the more you feel the sorrow of this film because it is an angry crime film. It is not a gangster movie like Scorsese movies where gangsters are presented kind of as this fun underworld that you can be part of and it's dangerous, but it's fun. Nor is it escapist light like uh, Italian Job where it has a little grit, but ultimately the stakes are very low. And this is a... A crime thriller that has actual real-world implications, real themes. Well, and this is where bombing bombings are taking place. And, uh, you know, this is something that for people growing up in Ireland and in, in England in the 80s, 
this is very real and terrifying and an ongoing thing. And I to see it on a screen presented the way this is, I can't even imagine what that would have felt like at the time because it wasn't over. It's not like the troubles had ended and this was in the rearview mirror. This is a movie made right at the height of this where it's a very fresh wound and it's an ongoing Yeah, films wound. like that deserve more credit when you have writers and filmmakers who are willing to go out and tackle a very sensitive issue while it's still happening. Even if this film had been... 20 years later it would still be just as good but just having it come out while it was so topical makes it even a a more brave film how great is paul freeman paul freeman who i adore is so good in this and i i would put the ending of this movie up against any of the great endings in film i think this is one of those movies where it's great all the way through but when you see how they stick the landing you are hushed by it helen mirren is great in this movie Pierce Brosnan, a young Pierce Brosnan. You'll even see a young Kevin McNally from Pirates of the Caribbean. That chubby guy. I love that guy. I also love movies about guys who get their hands on something, get that dream. Like, it falls in their lap. Here it is. Here's my moment. I'm going to get everything I ever wanted. And they almost get it right. And watching those movies where it just sand between somebody's fingers. You might not even be rooting for Bob Hoskins, but you can't help but empathize he believes he's reached his big payday and he deserves to be able to settle down that to me is another interesting thing how how movies like this raise the stakes because you think oh he's a powerful british gangster for lack of a better word that's pretty intimidating you can't get much scarier than that oh wait ira bombs that's much scarier you're not going to talk anybody out of anything you're not going to back anybody down it's hell-bent our next movie is a break from the kind of film that this star normally made and While I admire the effort, uh, I do not think the results merited uh, the the attempt. It is a rough, rough ride of a movie called Some Kind of Hero. Richard Pryor. When he's good, he's very good. But when he's bad, he's terrific. I think Daddy's going to get a big kick out of you. (laughs) Yes, sir. Stick up. I don't believe I heard you. Stick up. Smooth trigger action. It's a robbery. Richard Pryor in Some Kind of Hero. Uh, the longer we do this podcast, the more I realize that you were right. Richard Pryor might have had the worst manager ever. In the early 80s especially, this man could have made virtually anything he wanted. And instead, Some Kind of Hero was just a giant mess. It's about a Vietnam vet who comes home after being imprisoned in a POW camp and has trouble fitting into the life. I don't know if the original uh, screenplay was meant to be uh, bittersweet, lightly funny, or a broad comedy. It's a novel, and the novel is definitely much more in line with sort of the counterculture voice of books like MASH, Catch-22. It's not as good as any of those, but it's trying for that kind of thing. It is It is a guy who comes home and, and really can't find his place in society and, and keeps trying to get it right and sort of fails upward. I am so baffled by Richard Pryor's work in this film. I've got to imagine that this is just a case where he and the director were never on the same wavelength. His early scene where he's actually captured in Vietnam, all the Vietnam stuff is as phony as phony gets. I don't buy any of it. It looks like it's on a Malibu back lot. I don't believe that he's in Vietnam. I don't believe he's a soldier. I don't think he's been through training. I don't believe he knows how to hold that gun. And it's not that's not on him, okay? That is the director. 
If your guy is not a convincing soldier, you need to set him aside and say, look, you're gonna, people are going to laugh at you. You need to hold the gun this way and talk this way and walk that way. Nobody ever gave him any instruction. It was just, oh, we got a popular comedian. Point the camera at him, and if it sucks, oh, well, he's the one who will take the blame for it. Well, it feels like Richard doesn't trust the material and that he keeps falling back on, maybe if I just make you laugh in the scene, that's enough. But the movie isn't that, so there's n he can't really do it, but he plays it almost sitcom-y at times. Margot Kidder plays a woman that he eventually runs into. Oh, that was one of my notes. <laughs> uh, it seems like an earnest drama about Vietnam and trying to put some troubling memories behind you and start a new life. But then why is it laden with so much bad comedy shtick? Was this written for someone else? Did the producers get cold feet regarding Pryor being downbeat and serious? And why is Margot Kidder a hooker? Let's see how many times during this decade, because I know of at least three others, but let's see how many times during this decade we get the exact same scene that plays out in this movie to play out in other films. The scene where the guy who's in a relationship with a woman who's working as a sex worker makes the mistake of during the fight calling her a whore. We're going to see that over and over and it's the same exact beat every time. Will we ever land on that perfect Richard Pryor vehicle? Don't I, don't, I don't think we got it ahead of us, unfortunately. Um, this next film is one that I'm excited to talk about. It was notorious. That's really the only way to describe it. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, directly from the seediest, slimiest corners of New York City circa 1982, it's Frank Henenlotter, Basket Case. <laughs> What is the secret Dwayne is hiding in the basket? What's in the basket? Easter eggs? What's in the basket? My brother. Open it, if you dare. Basket case, opening at our theater for you. An analysis film presentation. I love this movie. You can smell it. Well, when you see those seedy, shitty Times Square 42nd Street theaters, it feels like Basket Case is the movie that should always be playing inside them. Uh, Basket Case is very simply about a dorky loser weirdo who goes to a flop house with a basket under his arm. And then the very nosy and irretrievably sleazy denizens of said flop house want to know what's in the basket. Is it a bunny rabbit? Is it perhaps a plethora of peanut butter and jelly sandwiches? No, it is our protagonist's deformed brother who was sliced off of his side in a surgical fashion, and now they're hitting New York City for revenge, trying to kill the doctors who done did it. And it is bananas, and I love every second of it. It is an unapologetically CD film. This film looks like it was shot on the floor of a movie theater. But you know what it's not? sleazy we're watching mgm and and in major studios put out slasher movies that are little more than a guy hiding in a closet watching a girl get a mammogram meanwhile this guy with what 50 grand 100 grand heads into new york city with a rubber piece of glop under his arm and a basket and he makes this this movie you could you would almost expect it to be leering and gross about women and nope some of the women are sleazy, some of them are heroic, but there's never any leering or rape or grossness like that. And I like that a Grindhouse movie like that will still have some degree of restraint. I love that it looks like Sharon, the uh, the female lead in the movie, it looks like her wig was made for somebody else. 
Like, yeah. it just doesn't quite fit, right? It doesn't fit her face. It, she is Miss Yvonne from Pee-wee's Playhouse as a romantic lead in a horror film, and it's awesome. This whole movie feels like everybody's on pills. From the moment Belial finally appears, Henenlotter's not afraid to sh- show him or shoot him head on or use him as a character. Um, Belial gets a fair amount of screen time, and as a terrible puppet, he's awesome. Hey, as an ugly puppet, he's beautiful. It's very sketchy, and yeah, if you want to like point and laugh, feel free. But in order to uh, get that monster to walk across the floor, that probably took four days. Laugh away. I think it's impressive. I don't think you can over-explain Basket Case. It is, you're either going to succumb to its charms very quickly, or you're going to know within about ten minutes that it is not for you. But, man, if you really want fun, grimy, grindhouse horror... Basket Case is a king for a reason. It deserves its reputation. It deserves its cult status. It is the real deal. Speaking of super gory. Oh, God. Here we go. Dungeons and dragons. Wizards and witches. Magic and revenge. And a warrior caught between. This this was a movie where I I talked my mom into going to the theater with me, and I was like, you know, it's like your fantasy books, you know, like those Tolkien, like that. And so we went to the theater. Wait a minute, your mom was a Tolkien freak, and you talked her into taking you to see Albert Pune's Sword and the Sorcerer. You sneaky bastard! And I'm telling you, the <laughs> end of the opening scene of this movie, the look she was giving me was you shit. And by the end of the movie, when the greatest gore effect of 1982 happens, um, she lost her mind. She went to the lobby. She wouldn't talk to me on the way home. She was very upset with me. And uh, and I loved every second of it. Sword and the Sorcerer is bonkers. Obviously, one of the films that uh, was par- inspired by the resurgence of Conan the Barbarian, which is weird because Conan the Barbarian hasn't even come out in theaters yet, Drew. And I don't know if I would say inspired by that so much as I think in there was something in the air right then about they were trying to make fantasy at studios. They were trying to get it through the system. And I think this is a case where the low-budget people were like, hey, man, it's happening at the studios. We just got to get in on it. So it's not just Conan. I think in general, fantasy was big again. Yeah, for years, I always thought that it was strictly Conan and everyone copied copied. Now I'm thinking, like, well, a handful of these came out before Conan, so it couldn't have been just that. The rumblings of this movie coming, but there must have been a Tolkien resurgence or there must have been something that inspired all these people to get into the swords and sandals. Having said all that, this to me is the perfect example of a low-budget action-adventure, swords and sandals, wizards and warriors, dungeons and dragons, call it what you want. It never slows down. It's got like 20 colorful actors, archetypal characters. It is like Battle Beyond the Stars. It has a great sense of humor. It knows that it's not original. It, it is having a gloriously good time riffing on all these adventure movie tropes. And then it also has some legitimately original, unique ideas of its own. It's got a great cast. The score is excellent. The action is plentiful. The movie moves like a shot. I know it's a B-movie, but this is far and away one of my favorite movies of this episode, and probably of the year. And everything about it, the three-bladed sword, and where Zusha's hiding, and Richard Lynch is the bad guy, and it looks like Van Art. I really enjoy watching it. I can't defend it. 
I love, you know who I love in this movie of all people? Joe Regalbuto. <laughs> Why? I don't know. He's just one of the sidekicks who like, he, he, he wants to give talent, our hero. He wants to give him up and then he ends up being heroic. And it's Joe Regalbuto who you've seen in hundreds of things. And he's just great. And, and there's Simon McCorkendale, Richard Mall as an evil wizard. There's just so much fun in this movie. And I also, unfortunately, think that this gentleman would never go on to direct another good film. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, Albert Piano, I've had a little contact with him over the years. When I first mentioned on Ain't It Cool years and years and years and years ago that I was a fan of Sword and the Sorcerer, he reached out via email. And clearly is a guy that any mention of it summons him like Candyman. And he was delighted that people actually remembered it. And I got the sensation from talking with him that it had never really happened for him. Like, he had never heard from people that were fans of that film. And I think the internet kind of finally allowed him to see that that movie stuck with people that were fans of the genre. And I'm glad for him because you're right. He didn't put it together again. The only other noteworthy film I think that Albert Pion ever directed was Cyborg with uh, Van Damme. Now, as the credits begin, there's a, a title on the screen and it says Talon, the hero, will return in Tales of the Ancient Empire. And, you know, once, like, the 80s were over and the 90s kind of went, and occasionally a movie geek would be like, so I guess we're never getting that Sword and the Sorcerer sequel. Well, guess what? The, about three or four or five years ago, I don't remember exactly, Mr. Pion got the funding he needed, and he actually made a film called Tales of the Ancient Empire. I saw it. I wrote about it for then Twitch Film. It is unwatchable in every way. And it just really kind of bummed me out a little bit. I'd rather there have never been a sequel and just that cute little mystery at the end than to uh, to have this horrible exploitation of a beloved B-movie. I, I would love to hear from people who have overlooked, intentionally overlooked, Sword and the Sorcerer because you just assumed from the title or maybe the cover that it was just chintzy, cheesy, boring I would love to hear from some of those people who will give it a second chance. And even if you don't like it, I'd like to know. It's a winner. Um, I wish I could say the same about our last film this week, uh, which I am not crazy about. Oh, yay! We get to end on an argument. Hooray! Let us jump right into a debate about Paul Schrader's Cat People. newspapers for theaters and showtimes the original cat people is both overrated in some ways and also exactly rated correctly because it is certainly a early example of just how much you could wring mood out of the conventions of filmmaking and val luton was a master at what he did and the way those films were made all of the movies that he had a hand in had a very masterful sense of mood and creating tension based on things you didn't see there is no necessity that a remake has to play by those rules at all. But I don't really get Paul Schrader's Cat People. I think it's about six different movies, none of which really fit together. Man, I don't know how to handle it when you're this wrong about a film. Let me start by saying, first off, you're wrong. Ooh, no, I'm not kidding. <laughs> uh, what, what I find interesting about this movie is that how many films can you name that Paul Schrader directed but didn't write? Not many, and I, this is, I actually uh, knew Alan Ormsby fairly well for a little while. Uh, this was not a movie you mentioned to him. 
Really? And why is that? Oh, legendary battles. Legendary battles. Okay, well, considering his other credits are like, uh, well, My Bodyguard, which is amazing, but he also wrote Porky's 2. So maybe, you know, just keep your mouth shut and enjoy the residuals. And children shouldn't play with dead things and popcorn and, yeah. Which I like. I like both of those. I don't like the performances. And the special effects are fine. Tom Berman's work is good. Dude, I, all right. Wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. I had never in my, I had never as a kid, because I didn't really pay attention to her that closely, never really thought Natasha Kinski was that great of an actor growing up. I thought she was a beautiful model who turned into a decent actor. I think she's freaking phenomenal in this movie. I don't know, man. I, it doesn't connect for me. I don't I don't think she has any real chemistry with Malcolm McDowell. I don't think the two of them are good together. I don't think they're supposed to, though. Uh, well, I mean, they're, they're playing, they're, they should be drawn to one another, unavoidably. No, he's, he's drawn to her. She is a young woman in New York City. And he uh, arrives uh, more or less on her doorstep and announces that he's her long-lost brother. And then he's, she, we slowly come to realize that not only is he insistent that he's her long-lost brother, but also that they're both descended from these uh, mystical cat people. And the problem with being these cat people is that they cannot mate with normal humans because at the point of climax, they transform into cats and shred their lovemaking partner. Whereas Malcolm McDowell is convinced that he can have an incestuous relationship, and neither of them will shred each other to death. John Hurd, in arguably his maybe his biggest role in a film to the, at this point, as the uh, zookeeper or biologist or uh, you know who who takes a, a shine to Natasha Kinski, and he's fantastic in the movie. He's great because he's not playing it like macho guy. He's playing it like a normal guy who doesn't have a movie camera pointed on him. He's sometimes is uh, tough and belligerent. And sometimes he's very sweet and sensitive. He's he's a it's a really good performance, I think. And I want to like this movie. It's a movie that I've tried to like over and over again. I've come back to it over and over again. I own it on Blu-ray. I, I, it, I don't want to dislike cat people. I wish I loved it. The problem is that I love horror movies, I love cats, and I love people. So I'm biased. But uh, I, qu- I quite like cat people. I, I think that uh, it is a really interesting uh, story about the fear and or the embrace of carnal pleasure. I think that is definitely what it's aiming for. I will say this about it. It does have good work by many of the people involved. There are pieces of this film I like. I just don't think that they ever really figured out how this version of the movie could work as a whole film. It's just bits and pieces to me. Fair enough. Uh, I don't mind ending an episode with you being wrong and me being right. That's totally fine, Drew. I... I will say it's interesting that its theme song is actually, in my opinion, been stolen by another movie. And that is rare. When a movie is as closely tied to its theme as this is, and that Bowie song, I love the Bowie song. And that's my favorite thing about the movie is when that plays, the movie's style kind of clicks into focus for me. But I, Inglorious Bastards stole it, and I don't think they're, I, th- I think they lost it. I don't think it's Cat People's song anymore. Drew, what do we have in store for our people next time well listen guys please stop by www.patreon.com backslash 80s all over or come by 80s all over.com backslash the 80s all over store help support this show please guys rate and review the show on itunes spread the word you are the ones that are helping the show grow from week to week and next time is going to be particularly good as we start downhill into the summer of 1982 arnold schwarzenegger serves at the will of crom steve martin literally steps into film history america's favorite orphan sings and yes finally mad max returns battle truck 